Into That World Inverted, a podcast, a pilgrimage, a queer road trip. Two friends set off in search of places that have meant so much to LGBTQ lives past and present. In this episode, which is all about private domestic queer spaces, we travel into deepest Kent, where the custodian of Sissinghurst Castle reveals the story of the place and its aristocratic queer owners. Holly, I'm just boiling the kettle. Do you want some coffee? No, thank you. Uh, cup of tea. Wow. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, what, what have you done? That's amazing. Where to even begin? So, I'm so excited about <laughs> today's um, stop on our road trip that I have made a, I don't know how to call it, it's, um, I guess it's a flower crown, but you've, it's... You've it's bound to, all of these like flowers together. Yeah, so it's, so it's, it's going to sit on top of my boater hat, yep. so it's going to adorn the hat, Yeah. Um, and I've made it out of dry flowers, all of which I'm sure are grown or were grown or will be grown at Sissinghurst. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the flowers that you've got here? I'm, I'm a complete novice where it comes to gardening and horticulture. I've got a lot of alliums, so you know they're big spherical mm. um, statements. Yeah. I've got poppy heads. Right. Um, and I've got lamb's ear. It's I wanted like, to mark the occasion because yeah. I think I mean Sissinghurst means so much um, because of course Vita Sattva West means so much to me. And where do you even begin with her? I mean she was she she was and is Virginia Woolf's Orlando. She is who Virginia Woolf took inspiration from when she wrote the novel. Um, and of course, you know, I've named my drag character Orlando. Um, so. Yeah, and I, I think in general, I just, I feel such an affinity with Vita and I just, I, I've wanted to visit this place for years yeah. and, and we're going today. Well, and really so I needed, yeah. yeah, so well, I needed to push the boat out. We, we could have, obviously we could have gone to Knoll, which yes. was, which was Vita's, um, ancestral family home, family home, mm-hmm. um, which famously she couldn't inherit because she was a woman yeah right so yeah. and then it, it passed to her uncle and hence why virginia wolf then wrote orlando as a kind of um to remedy that situation yeah. um because in the novel she does doesn't mm. she she mm. does inherit the family home or orlando does inherit the home mm. um although that's complicated by the change of gender but anyway <laughs> but it's such a fantastic book and i think it's probably my favorite of virginia wolf's novels mm. Um, this, you know, time traveling, gender, gender hopping, hopping, gender hopping is much better than gender bending. Yes, yeah, definitely gender hopping. Yeah. Um, character who moves through these different spaces, and it feels very much like it, like a, a very personal tribute mm. to Vita by Virginia, who was obviously who, and they were lovers for a while. Yeah. But friends for even longer. Today, um, we are very much going to mm-hmm. Vita's fantasy, you know, Sissinghurst, it's the castle, the garden, you know, it's this fantasy that she built. And I mean, mm. I know that she moved to Sissinghurst, um, she bought Sissinghurst two years after she published Orlando. But for me, um, Sissinghurst, when you see Sissinghurst, you can see why 
women fell in love with Vita. I mean, mm. just... Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, and Harold Nicholson, who was yes. Vita's husband mm. and um, who had many like gay affairs. In his own right. In yeah. his own right, yeah. Um, and so they had this open marriage. and. Um, but that's fascinating as well. Yeah. And it's, you know, she led such a multifaceted life. And um, when you read... Um, you know, there's so when you read her letters to Harold, but then you read her letters to Virginia, um, you realise that yeah, she had a lot going on. Um, but also, yeah, her marriage to Harold was equally as sincere and important to her as all of her affairs mm. with women. And it's it's tribute to a very interesting way of queer living, um, probably because of the time they were living in. Um, but they made it work. And, you know, mm. Sissinghurst, yeah, I, I've been talking a lot about Vita, but Sissinghurst is as much um, down to Harold as it is to Vita. I mean, it was a really joint collaboration between the two of them. And there's that wonderful book, Portrait of a Marriage, mm. which is published by... Nigel. Nigel Nicholson, who was their son. Mm. Um, and he so he found... Oh, the story. Huh. This, I mean, the writing tells. Go on, okay. You, um, you, you, you tell the story then. Okay. So upon Vita's death, um, Nigel, as her literary executor, is that? Is that exec e executor? Exec <laughs> executor? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> executor. There yeah. we go. Um, yeah. He was um, going through her belongings um, and he found this locked Gladstone bag in her writing tower um, and he had to open it with a knife. And in it is this amazing manuscript. Um, it's a confession. It's about her affair with Violet Trefusis um, and the way it just tore through her marriage and sort of, you know, it, I think it left everyone in bits because it was so intense between all of them. But it's it's such an honest exploration of her queerness and she looks at this uh, this duality that she sees in herself between this masculine queerness and this feminine um, desire to be with Harold and um, this kind of instability of her extramarital affairs but then the stability of her marriage and yeah and so that's the sort of autobiography and then it's framed Nigel does the sort of biographic framing within her marriage um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because you have her, you have Vita trying to balance the masculine and the feminine, and then you have Nigel trying to balance um, the queer affairs and the heterosexual marriage. Um, so, yeah, with Vita, many sides, hmm. multifaceted, lots going on, duality. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Sissinghurst, we're going to meet Eleanor Black, who's hmm. the curator there. Um, and yeah, she's going to take us around um, the property. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to to see into the writing room, which I know you're very you're yeah. very excited about. I I can't <laughs> wait. Great. Okay. Well, um, place the flower crown upon the hat, mm -hmm. and we shall depart. We've just turned left onto the road that leads down to Sissinghurst. Um, it's a narrow country lane, trees on either side, fields as far as the eye can see. And we're here at the gate. Hey, Alex. Hello, this is Dermot Hester for Eleanor Black. Okay, I'll let you in. Thank you. 
Thanks. Thank you. The gates have opened and we're in. Dermot hasn't got his seatbelt on and the car's telling him off. We're now in the grounds. I can see chimneys. The sat-nav has reliably told us that we have arrived. I think that much was clear. Oh, wow. Okay, parking. I mean, immediately as we came from the industrial-sized National Trust car park down the little lane here, I've seen the writing tower rise in the distance, that writing tower that I've been so obsessed with. Um, and there it is, and you've, yeah, it's just the barn, and um, they've got, there's loads of climbing roses. So it's very, it's all red brick, little Elizabethan windows, red roof. It's a kind of, a, it's in a plus sign or something, isn't it? Because you've got this long accommodation, and then behind you've got this tower that emerges like straight up right in the middle. Mm. Um, the and over on the, the left, there are the um, oast houses, white tops like nuns' wimples. And you can kind of, there's a quite a few visitors here already. It's a really popular destination. Oh, I, I know. I mean, they flock from all over the world, I guess. I mean, yeah, the gardens, they're just renowned. They're world famous. So if we go up, I think actually Eleanor Black is going to meet us just under the archway here. So um, let's have a chat with Eleanor and she's going to take us to Vita's. I know you're very excited about this. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, the, the energy. Vita's writing room, which unfortunately is not as it, as it was. That doesn't matter. But um, she's going to open the door and let us see inside. Oh, I can't wait. So you said that, um, yeah, it was pretty much a ruin when yeah. they bought it in 1930. 1930, so April. Uh, it's April 1930, she drives down with her friend and lover, the poet Dorothy Wellesley, um, and the two of them come down, and Vita immediately falls in love, you know, that's very Vita, you know, she had these strong emotions with people as well, she fell in love instantly, um, but then takes little time to persuade Harold, not too long, he comes down, he looks at it, and writes this beautiful letter, setting out A, B and C, all these reasons why we should do it and why we shouldn't, so his first point is, we absolutely shouldn't buy Sissinghurst. It's going to cost us £30,000 to actually work on it. We could spend that money on a very habitable home with running hot and cold water and practicalities. And then his next point is, we must buy Sissinghurst. It's connected to your ancestral home. We can make what we want of it. And I think there's a nice line that says, yes, the Sackville line comes via the female line of the family, but we're both feminists, and that's the way that Noel came into the family anyway. So it's, it's really nice. You can see in those letters the two of them kind of thrashing out the practicalities of taking on basically a ruin and doing a big grand design style project with it. Yeah, should we go and have a look at the writing room, peek through the door? Come on up. So you've caught us at a time where the writing room looks nothing like it looked for Vita. So she dies in 1962, National Trust take the tower on in 1967 so usually you'd be looking pretty much at the room as it was almost the day she died you know books in the same order half used lipstick in the cupboard 
However, in August last year, we had a section of a seedling fall down. So we're doing a big conservation building project to make sure that we are looking after the kind of walls and ceiling in a, the way that we should be. It's an Elizabethan tower, you know, it's going to take some caring for. So just, you know, manage your expectations as I open this door. Holly, do you want to come and um, stick your nose in there? So, you have to imagine you walk in and then to the left is Vita's desk. Um, and that's where you'll find things like her photograph of Virginia, photograph of Harold sitting opposite, um, kind of half-chewed pencils and soil samples and plant labels. It's such a beautiful kind of tapestry of material culture that gives you a sense of one person. And then the bookcases line the room. So we've got about 2,800 books in here, lots of annotations and interesting kind of psychological glimpses into how she reacted to the various books she was reading. Um, we have usually what you'd be staring directly at is the Gladstone bag, which is an iconic piece of a collection at Sissinghurst. It's the bag where her son, Nigel, found the manuscript that would become the source material for his book, Portrait of a Marriage, which sets out his parents' relationship, marriage, the way that they found a way to make their open marriage work. Um, so yeah, usually that's the thing you'd be looking at directly opposite the door. Um, and that was, you know, completely a surprise to Nigel. He found it, it was a locked bag, he couldn't get in. And so the bag still has the slash mark where he got a knife and just ripped it open. It's a really amazing piece of kind of yeah, quite magical history for us. It's a really emotive object. So you had to break into his mother's past. Yes, I mean, it's, you know, it's almost heavy-handed how sort of metaphorical it is of, you know, Vita and Harold. They, they were pretty discreet about their relationships. You know, the boys did know about, you know, the fact they were having extramarital relationships with men and women. Um... But I don't, you know, Vita had written an entire manuscript setting out, you know, this thing. And I think probably that was quite an interesting moment for Nigel. You know, he was grieving, he'd lost his mother and was finding this kind of hidden part of her story. It must have been really quite an emotional moment. How do you feel, Holly? I'm appreciating the, the silence um, and there's a sense of majesty um, to this room. This meant a lot to her. This was sort of where she could lock herself away and, you know, those spaces where you can be yourself. And that's that's what I'm getting from the space. Absolutely. And I'm, as I'm sure you know, it was not a space you invited people into. This yes. wasn't a sociable space. Yeah. This was, you know, maybe some lovers. You know, her son said they'd been in a handful of times, you know, by the time she died in 1962. It wasn't a sociable part of a house. This was a place of isolation where she could be completely surrounded by objects that told the story of her life, reminded her of lovers and travels and achievements and Noel, of course. Um, and she was incredibly, you know, she's an amazing writer. She wrote lots of novels, lots of gardening articles, you know, really substantial, um, long kind of romantic poems. So I think now Vita Sackville West is known as a gardener, but really, you know, she was a prize-winning poet. She was actually incredibly prolific and this room gave her exactly that silence and removal from society and pressure to create all of this art which is for me something that I really want to push at Sissinghurst but this was a room that gave her the agency to express herself and create things without worrying about intrusion. When I think about Vita I think about all 
all of the facets of her life that she balanced. I mean, she balanced um, a marriage to a man. She balanced uh, many lovers. Um, and she had all of these kind of warring desires. Um, and But one really gets the sense that this room, as you say, it was just for her. And um, it was a place where she could reconcile these um, facets of her life that sometimes um, came into conflict with one another. It's also absurdly extravagant, right? I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and lofty, right? You know, like who decides, oh yeah, that tower over there, that, that enormous tower, I'm going to go and, uh, and just, uh, just write over there and no one else is allowed in. Yes, it, I mean, it is. And that, that is very Vita. So there's a nice Virginia Woolf um, quote, you know, Virginia wasn't always that polite about Vita's writing. And she said something along the lines of all that Vita should do all day is just stride around with like um, elk hounds next to her and just be this iconic kind of lord of the manor kind of taking charge of a big house. And, you know, I think that is kind of true. I think it's mm. quite performative, this room, although it was private I think it's an interesting psychological thing she created a very beautiful quite performative kind of theatrical space but it was just for her and I yeah it's very interesting and I really do think that historic houses should avoid doing too much psychoanalysis on our historical figures we can't meet them we can't work in the societal kind of uh, norms and rules that they were working in so I'm really careful to kind of not do too much psychoanalysis on Vita but I think it is a very interesting kind of choice to say, right at the heart of Sissinghurst, you know, the grand tower, this is where I'm going to really reflect my personality and my agency. I think probably says quite a lot about, yeah, how bold she was as a character. And her, her version of herself changes across her life. So, you know, you, you might talk about her life at Knoll, potentially, you know, in where she has this nickname, Kidlet, in the newspapers. So... The media are very, very interested in her at the point where she's like in her early, late, te late, te late teens and early 20s. And she's kind of a socialite and she has these suitors and she's one of the suitors gives her a, a baby bear to live at Knoll. It's all very glamorous and kind of exciting. And so there's that version of her. And then she starts to get this agency. And while she's living at Long Barn, she's you know, running away with Violet to, and dressing as Julian. Um, and has lots and lots of relationships in her kind of late 20s, early 30s. Um, and it's all very busy and chaotic. I mean, I feel she's 38 when she takes on Sissinghurst. And this is a moment where she's almost reinventing herself again. And mm. that's definitely um, something that Virginia feels because she complains that she's come to see Vita at Sissinghurst. And all Vita is interested in is gardening and the countryside. And she started wearing red lipstick and pearls, which... Virginia finds you know unpleasant and that Vita looks a little bit plump and she doesn't like it and so I think you know Sissinghurst is a new version of Vita you know she adapts and kind of like settles into country life a little bit here which you know probably after such a busy sort of decade before that where so much was happening for her it was probably a bit of a pause and a sort of re-evaluation of who she was and how she wanted to present herself. Um, yeah, visitors often ask, oh, how did she find time to have all these relationships and a marriage and write all of these things and travel all over the world? And I honestly don't know. She must have, I mean, been amazing at time management. And even with, you know, lots of staff and domestic chores that we have to deal with taken out, I think she still was incredibly kind of driven mm. and just wanted to experience, particularly in her 20s and early 30s, just wanted to experience everything. And I suppose that's quite... Uh, 
a writerly thing to do, isn't it? You just want to absorb everything so that you can then channel it into whatever creative endeavour you're doing. But you are so right about um, these multiple versions of Vita um, that biographers and researchers have to grapple with. Mm. There is um, Vita the husband, Vita the mother, um, to Nigel and Ben. There's Vita the lover, there's Vita as Julian um, cross-dressing in Hyde Park and Paris with Violet Trefusis. Um, there is Vita who elopes with Violet and then you know there's that amazing story that is could be is so easy to, easy to sensationalize about the husbands you know chartering an airplane to go to Europe to collect and beg back their wives um, who've run away together and it, it's but then again you have Vita the gardener Vita at Sissinghurst um, in a quieter um, more self-reflective um, at times isolated um, time. I mean, um, I was reading something that she'd written where um, she'd become so isolated and um, enraptured and um, consumed by the garden that people would come and visit and say, have you seen this play and have you visited this exhibition? And she'd say, oh, no, and you know, this, this is making me look boring. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a testament to um, a life lived well and a long life. Um, and the variety um, of experiences and personas and um, that she embodied, um, and the movability of life, and the um, the ability to the ability to be contradictory and complex and lead these kind of messy lives that aren't easy for biographers to pin down. And but that's what makes Vita so um, kind of. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, not interesting. Mercurial? Yeah, like, you know, that's why I think biographers get and researchers get obsessed with her because they want they want to know everything. Um, that's why podcasters also get obsessed by her. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Holly, you've, you've changed your outfit. You're wearing rather more formal breaches today i know i know i felt i mean you've got to dress up for sissinghurst so <laughs> i really we've got the linens we've got the linen shirt and let smart linen trousers um so informal linen is a bit more informal but at the same time we're wearing a trousers today as a part as opposed right. to a shirt. you're not going to get thrown out like yeah. one would out of a church for wearing shorts i know i thought i thought trousers are especially important to vita sapper west in many ways i mean in the portrait of a marriage um she recalls the first day she ever wore trousers um and i've got the passage here um and if you don't mind i'd love to read from it because it is just i can feel her excitement fizzing off of the page um and so she says um I had just got clothes like the women on the land were wearing and in the unaccustomed freedom of breeches and gaiters, I went into wild spirits. I ran, I shouted, I jumped, I climbed, I vaulted over gates. I felt like a schoolboy let out on a holiday. And Violet followed me across fields and woods with a new meekness, saying very little, but never taking her eyes off me. So of course, Violet being Violet Trefusis. And um, it's so exciting that um, 
for Vita wearing the trousers, um, it was almost the beginning of their relationship because then that night um, at Long Barn, Violet and Vita spoke and um, this was when Vita admitted that she had feelings for women and of course after that the affair begun between the two of them. So trousers really, um, really is, trousers are the catalyst for a new dimension in Vita's life. Um, and especially coming to Sissinghurst um, today when Vita is older, um, more self-assured probably in who she is and in her sexuality. Um, there are all, all of those wonderful photos where she's in her breeches and you know her long boots and um, it's interesting to think well you know she's marching about and she's confident then um, in her choice to wear trousers and in her masculinity and potentially a, potentially a little bit more in her queerness. Um, so I love yeah. how that connects to your own story you know how you know donning a particular costume mm. allowed you to inhabit this other persona that, that kind of liberated you I suppose in some ways I mean I think I had I think I can relate to Vita's story in that way because I think she did admire men and admire masculinity um growing up in the same way that I did and in a feeling but I always had the feeling that I could never embody those kind of masculinities for myself so so when I became Orlando and I was allowed to embody these masculinities that I had so admired. Yeah, I, I, I felt on the stage that same, I can really see that. I can see why she was so excited because it is exhilarating. I mean, I went to an all-girls school. I wore tights and skirts for many, too many years. We weren't allowed to wear trousers. I still don't know if you can wear trousers at the school I went to. Um, so yeah, that, that opportunity to um, break that boundary um, and trespass into this new realm. I mean, it's just, for me, it's exhilarating. It's great to see you so excited. I know, I know, I know. I can, I can feel <laughs> yeah. myself, yeah. I, I feel like we're a couple of schoolboys on holiday. I Shall we take a trip through the gardens let's like go. a couple of schoolboys? Yeah, uh... So we're standing in the White Garden now, which is the final garden room that Vita and Harold worked on um, and it was a bit of an experiment for them. Vita wasn't totally sure it would it would work but it's turned out to be our most iconic garden. It's copied across the world and the planting, although it's called the white garden, it's actually soft colours so they do introduce some lilacs. I think between Vita and Harold they'd had this exchange of letters about whether the accent colours would be I think pink or yellow and I think they go for yellow so it's it's quite a good example of how collaborative they were in their planting style because there sometimes is this characterization that Vita did flowers and Harold did design and that's not true they 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 both did this they both understood I think by this point they, they'd cracked their formula of how to work together at Sissinghurst um, so they're yeah it's a real success story for us so they lived very much between these two spaces it wasn't seen as a distinction of I'm going into the garden it was just a you know a beautiful corridor linking up domestic space so all the gardens spread out in front of us here. Um, that statue, what is that statue that just is right in our eye line there? So that's Dionysus. So actually, of course. of course it is. And actually, as you walk around the garden, you find uh, various versions of Dionysus and Bacchus and Pomona, mm. who was, you know, a nymph of Bacchus. And um, yeah, the statue, I think it's very interesting and telling of how they saw the garden, that the classical statues they chose, and Harold knew, the classical world and mythology incredibly well. They chose gods and goddesses of wine and sex and joy and plenty. And I think it's quite telling that actually this garden, it's a beautiful work of art. 
they were embracing fun and joy and plenty as they made this place. And I think it shows in Vita's approach to planting. You know, she famously said, like, cram, cram, cram with your mm. flower beds. It's all about abundance and plenty and, yeah, just embracing a little bit of chaos, which is, mm. you know, very... Gentle chaos. Gentle chaos. That's a nice phrase for it. Yeah. But I suppose it is very circumscribed at the same time. You know, it's very ordered in terms of how many. Uh, tell us a little bit about the gardens, maybe, you know, in terms of form, the formally and, and how they're laid out. So um, the gardens are laid out in rooms. So Vita and Harold were not the first people to do garden rooms. So the rooms are defined either by a type of planting or a colour scheme, a, a sort of design approach. Um, and the gardeners at Sissinghurst still very much stick to Vita and Harold's inspiration and scheme, although they're, you know, developing it and working out how to best um, show it to the visitors. Um, but also you have to remember that Sissinghurst was a grand Tudor Elizabethan manor, so Vita and Harold, part of what they liked about Sissinghurst is that they were taking on somewhere that had these remaining walls. So as you look to the left and right here, you've got remaining fragments of the much grander Elizabethan manor house, which would have been a party house. You know, it was designed for feasting and hunting and royal visits. It was probably a really fun place to be. And I'm sure Vita and Harold liked that story. And we still have elements of that. So if you look down there towards the lion pond, that you can probably hear bubbling away, that window is still there. And that would have been a window giving, hopefully, a view out to a, you know, a courtyard or something for the Elizabethan manor house. So but it's a combination of they wanted to do these garden rooms, um, which they'd already been testing out of their previous home in a much smaller way, Long Barn. So they see the opportunity here with the structure of the Elizabethan walls. They actually have come to a place where it's almost defined how these garden rooms are going to be set out. They're quite confusing. So visitors to Sissinghurst, you'll, they'll come and find you in the garden and say, I think I've missed a whole kind of section because actually unless you keep the tower in the middle and do a sort of clockwise or anti-clockwise loop round it's a bit of a maze you could miss the herb garden or you could miss the Delos Greek Mediterranean garden um, and I think again that's part of the joy of it is actually getting lost and they are little private kind of um, things so Harold called the garden rooms here a series of escapes which I absolutely mm. love as a sort of way of describing them. What do you think about people people like us you know people that are kind of wandering through Sissinghurst you know I suppose maybe not even reclaiming Vita as a queer precursor but certainly kind of emphasizing that part of her story do you, I mean do you get many people like us for instance yes we do so Vita is just iconic um, I see it more um, online whenever we post anything about particularly you know we've got so many beautiful iconic photos of Vita where she looks like a classical hero she's like standing on a mountaintop in these amazing quite masculine um, outfits you know her iconic kind of lace-up boots and I see reactions that people have online she means so much to people and is a real icon so we do get lots of visitors who come here as a pilgrimage site and I once went on a tour of the South Cottage we, we offer those daily and there were a couple who you know it meant so much one of the ladies was crying and they'd named their daughter Vita and actually it's, it's amazing to see what she means to people I think the complexity comes, I was asked very recently, oh, should we talk about them as advocates for decriminalisation or, you know, um, queer rights? And I've just got to be totally honest, you know, neither of them were honest about their relationships in, uh, in kind of wider society. Harold 
was so aware that his political and diplomatic career could be completely, you know, exploded if his relationships with men were known about. So he's very, very private to a point where actually only now is it there is some research going on to kind of understand his love life and his kind of network of men that he had relationships with. For Vita, I don't know. I mean, she published Challenge, which is an iconic um, kind of novel, which is not... Uh, you know, it's not completely open about kind of lesbian relationships, but is, you know, it's it's definitely part of the canon. So, you know, Vita wasn't facing jail or anything, but she was facing scandal and was an intensely private person, particularly. I don't think, I think she'd had that experience as a young woman actually being splashed across the newspapers during her um, family's quite complicated legal trial to do with ownership of Noel. And I think maybe that had made her want to avoid being, you know, public fodder. So she famously is asked to um, testify at the Radcliffe Hall trial. Um, and we have quite an interesting set of kind of ephemera and letters that talk about her thinking of why she felt she wouldn't get involved, which she claims is because it's not a very good book. Not sure quite how true that is, but it's quite interesting. Um, yeah, so I don't know how Vita would feel about being this kind of icon because she was so private and, as we've spoken about earlier, just the most contradictory person. So at one point she'll be writing about how sad it is that queer people have to hide their identity and then you get to a few letters time or a quotation and she's saying something kind of a little bit abhorrent about, you know, someone who has relationships with women. So, yeah, she's complex and she's not easy to pin down and she has good days and bad days, I think, like all of us. So, again, I'm really careful not to project, you know, the values that we have now in society onto Vita and Harold because it's just a much more complex time where they lived in just this probably constant state of like fear and high alert that their world could be exploded by scandal. And also, I mean, I suppose it's important not to erase the social context in which they lived, you know, um, because they emerged and, and their personalities and sexuality was formed in this very um, uh, constrained uh, censured kind of time which does warp one's one's perception of sexuality and creates that kind of contradiction that you're talking about I don't know it's interesting Vita's mother's uh, sort of um, approach to Vita's sexuality so she knew about you know Vita's relationships and there's a point later in life where she decides she's going to tell Ben and Nigel over dinner all about you, you're nodding you know this moment so Vita's mother decides that she's going to you know, tell the boys all about their mother's affairs. And then Virginia writes a letter saying, I can't believe she's done this. I can't believe she's sort of done this to the boys and exposed you. And it's really interesting. All of those moments, I think, must have been so raw for Vita. And like I say, probably living slightly on eggshells for your entire existence, wondering who's going to talk about your private life is, you know, that's an incredibly difficult way to live. I suppose the kind of compartmentalization of, of life that happened here at Sissinghurst that you talked about earlier, we can think about that in terms of the kind of compartmentalization of one's private and public life. and But also Sissinghurst is this retreat, you know, a refuge, a kind of a, it's a castle, isn't it? It's like a fortification against, you know, the revelations that could, that could, um, could occur. So, so we come through uh, a uh, the um, oh, well, we come through the D 
ditch. No. <laughs> We've come through. We are, come no. through a hedge. We're yeah. in, so we're now in the U Walk. Vita and Harold would have gone down in the mornings to get from the little cottage that they slept in to the little cottage that they ate in because they had lots of cottages. Yeah, parceling out of existence. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a line about E.M. Forster, which I don't think applies in this case, but it reminds me of somebody said that E.M. Forster measured out his emotions like potatoes. Potatoes? Yeah, potatoes. You can just imagine, you, know, you, you make, you know, you boil up four potatoes and, you, you know, two for you and two for me. You know, this kind of very... That's such a rogue choice. I mean, I thought you were going to say, you know, a sort of T.S. Eliot. Coffee spoons. Measuring one's life in the taking of tea and um, <laughs> cups of tea. But no, potatoes, I mean. Well, I mean, you was know. Was he Irish? <laughs> that's slightly racist. Um, no, I, uh, well, you can see why I cleave to that kind of a description, given my, um, my affection for the, for the humble spud. Oh, yeah. Love a potato. So this is the rose garden down that direction. We're now going through a very little archway um, with climbing roses arched over. I guess this, these would have been the original Tudor walls. And uh, the, the tower looms above us I here. I was thinking that the sort of the Tudor buildings, you're never far from the, the red chimneys that you can see rising up. You can see why people have theorised gardens as being Edens and utopias. I mean, it's just, it's so peaceful. We're standing here at the end of the orchard by the moat um, that, you know, boundaries the the property of Sissinghurst Castle. Um, and yeah, maybe we do think in that kind of very one-dimensional, when someone says queer space, you kind of think, oh, a gay, a gay bar. bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've both said it. Yeah, a gay bar. Or, you know, like a community space that are, you know, that are necessary, that are really important to kind of community building. But yeah, as you say, this is a, this is a rural space. This is a, a kind of private space, a domestic space. Um, but of course, you know, we have to acknowledge, as you said, the privilege that is all around here, you know. I mean, yeah, I think I think Vita very much saw herself as part of this legacy of um, aristocratic English landedness, you know. Um, she was part of that, that class of people in this country. And um, she, saw, she saw Sissinghurst as a way to continue that. So... It's, it is part of a privileged um, legacy that has um, repercussions for class. Um, but at the same time, there is that, the fact that it is a queer space. And so, you know, it's a multifaceted space in that way. Um. I think it's interesting, you know, that we have this um, monumental archive to uh, a queer precursor, you know, in terms of you know, buildings, but also gardens. And, and as Eleanor pointed out, the, these corridors between buildings, between rooms. Between lives. Bet between lives, yeah, yeah. Um, and and Portrait of a Marriage, you know, that manuscript of the autobiography that, that Vita wrote. And all of that is, is really important. But I suppose it makes me think about all of the stories and the archives of of 
you know, people who didn't have that affluence, people whose houses were not taken over by the National Trust, you know, and 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 how many of those stories are lost, you know. So maybe it's it's worth remembering all of all of the lost stories, uh, even as we 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 move through Kent and Sussex and and even as we meet the other or the characters, the other people and, and, and talk about their stories. In the next episode, we visit Small Hyde Place, a relaxed and rambling queer space in Kent. The performer David McCalmont tells us about the trio of queer women who made the place their home. Into That World Inverted was presented by Dermot Hester and Holly James Johnston and produced by David Bramwell. With thanks to our funders, the University of Cambridge, and our partners, the National Trust and Creative Folkestone. Thanks also to all the writers, artists, curators, and community groups who gave up their time to talk to us. Into That World Inverted is a Prick Up Your Ears podcast. For more immersive audio journeys, visit prickupyourears.net. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please complete the short survey on the website. <laughs>